It's good to be with y'all again today. It's good to be here, isn't it? A few of you think so. That's good. Some of you are like, okay, Jerry, get to the point. Hey, Steve, would you put that first, that first picture up there? Does anybody know what movie this is? Wow, I didn't expect to see anybody light up quite like that. Just so you know, Laura Schoonover just like, <gasps> yeah. Yeah, so does anybody other than Laura know what this is? A few of you do? How many of you love this movie? Oh, yes. It's a great movie. This, just so you know, this is the movie Balto. The movie Balto, okay? And I intentionally got the one without Balto written across the left side because I wanted to see if anybody knew it. I actually asked Steve this morning if he thought anybody would, and he said, eh, people who have kids. So apparently that's not the only case. So, um, yes, this is a, the backdrop for the movie Balto. But see, what I love about this movie is it's based on a true story. Um, it is actually based off of a true story. See, in the winter of 1924 and 1925 in Nome, Alaska, there was an outbreak of diphtheria. Um, and this outbreak, if you know anything about diphtheria, it, it affects kids very, very heavily. And it actually was taking the lives of children because they were so sick. Um, so this outbreak is here, but because it's wintertime in Nome, Alaska, just so you know, way up north, there was no way to get to the port to bring any of the serum in that would cure these kids, that could get these kids the health that they needed. Uh, the port was closed off for the winter. They couldn't ship it by boat. And there was no other means of transportation available to get the medicine that these kids needed to them. The railways were shut down because they were snowed over. There was no way you could just drive a car or fly a plane because it was too cold. So they were in trouble. And the only vaccine that they had on hand where they were was outdated and ineffective. So what did they do? They were, they were in trouble. Well, the governor... He called in all he could, all of the serum he could, to have it shipped by rail to the city of Nanana. Now, that doesn't mean, if you're like me, you're like, I don't know where Nanana is, and really, frankly, I don't know where Nome is, so this doesn't mean anything to me. Well, there's about 674 miles of Alaskan wilderness between Nanana and Nome, Alaska. 674 miles between the two. So we can get you what you need. We can get you the medicine, but it's going to be 674 miles away. That doesn't do anybody any good, does it? Especially whenever it's wintertime in Alaska. 674 miles away. So what are they going to do? Well, the governor, the governor of Alaska, he authorized dog sled teams to run day and night until the serum arrived. This trip... This 674 miles would require 20 mushers, the people who drive the dog sleds, require 20 mushers, about 150 dogs in five and a half days to get this medicine across this Alaskan wilderness. Teams that ran these dog sleds, they would face temperatures of 20 degrees below zero. That's actual temperature, 20 degrees below zero. Wind chills would get as low as 80 degrees below zero. They reported running into ice fog, and one team even crashed into a herd of reindeer and got tangled. Yeah, true story. That actually happened. This, coupled with 65-mile-an-hour winds in the snow, mind you, would ultimately result in hypothermia, parts of their face turning black from frostbite, not to mention the death of numerous dogs. Now, what does this all have to do with the Bible today? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Um, 
except, except that just like last week, I tried, I tried to draw this analogy, this analogy between uh, sin and disease. Sin is a disease that is ultimately curable. It is curable. Through Jesus, we can be cured of our sin. We can be forgiven. And that's far, something that is far worse than diphtheria. Far worse than diphtheria. This is going to kill 100% of people that are affected with it. And it's not just a physical death, it's an eternal death. But there is a cure, and his name is Jesus. And if you remember back to last week, I told you that if we've been healed, we shouldn't look like diseased people anymore. We should no longer live like diseased people because we should be living like healthy people. And if our hearts have been healed, then we should have compassion then to take that cure to those around us. That should be our desire. So on that note, let's stand together. Let's read our text for today. For those of you who don't know where we're going to be, we're going to be in Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 1 today. And like I always do, I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Titus chapter 1, beginning or chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, says, Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out His Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Thank God for His Word. You may be seated. So, we are coming up on the final chapter of this letter that was written to Titus. And I'm just going to give you a quick recap here on what we've been talking about up to this. Because the last few weeks, we've been talking about um, the mature Christian life, what it means to be a mature follower of Jesus. And if you remember a couple weeks ago, Paul wrote Titus and he gave him some very practical application. He talked about how older men are to be mature, older women are to be teachers of good things, younger women are to be devoted um, to their families and to really, to one another. Um, And then young men are to take life seriously. We saw how servants, or Paul says slaves, are supposed to be trustworthy in everything. So as employees, we should be the best employees in the world. So we've been talking about what it looks like to be a mature follower. And he gives us that practical application. What's that word? Anybody want to say it for me? Thank you. Application. Woo! Y'all, talking is hard. Um, Nobody feels bad for me right now. Um, So, practical application. And then last week, last week we started talking about the why. Like, why is all of this so important? Why should our lives really be different from everybody else? And we talked about how all of that was grounded in the person of Jesus. All of it was grounded in the work that he did. All right, we talked about this just, just last week. So if you're like me, sometimes you walk out the doors and you forget what we talked about. That's why I'm giving you this refresher. Last week, we talked about how our lives, the way that we live, should be grounded in the work that Jesus did on the cross, in salvation, the work that he accomplished on our behalf. 
Our lives should be grounded in that. That should be everything to us. I mean, that's the reason we take life seriously. That's the reason we strive for maturity. That's the reason we're devoted to our families. It's because we know a good God who, despite the fact that we were sinners and we walked away, despite all of that, he still showed up and loved us. That's why our lives matter. That's why the way we live matters. That's why we should look different from the rest of the world. All of this, every part of it, flows from the grace that we've been shown in Jesus. All of it should flow from that. I'm actually um, really, I say I'm excited a lot, but I really am. I anticipate, I'm eagerly anticipating the start of DOTS. We got to have a meeting where we talked about uh, the curriculum that we're going to be walking through with DOTS, and we're going to focus on kindness this semester. Kindness. Which some people are like, yeah, of course you should be kind. Isn't that obvious? Like the world teaches kindness. You go, you go to the school, they're going to teach kindness. The government's going to push messages that encourage you to be kind. But why should the church be different? Why should we be kind? Like what's the motivation? And the answer is Jesus. <laughs> he is the motivation. Why should we be kind to those around us? Because of the great kindness that God showed to us. We weren't deserving of his kindness. No, we deserved his wrath, honestly. But he gave us his kindness. He loved us anyway. So of course we should be kind to those around us. We should just operate out of this overflow of God's grace, out of his kindness, out of his mercy. And of course we should live differently because of those things. We should be fundamentally different in our lives. And part of the reason I wanted to have this quick recap is because this week is going to be similar to last week. With a twist. Just a, just a little twist. We're still going to talk about how our lives should be different, but this week we're going to talk specifically, specifically about how we interact with the world around us. See, it would be really nice if we said, okay, be kind. And we're like, okay, well, yeah, we're all in the church. We all know Jesus. We all know the overflow of his grace and his kindness to us. So, yeah, we'll just, we'll just hang out here in this room for the rest of our lives and just be kind to one another. That sounds wonderful. Like, you think, i got to get out of this room. But, really... If we start thinking about, like, okay, if everybody, if everybody had received that kindness, like, if everybody knew that, it would be easy, wouldn't it? Like, if we all knew that overflow, things would become a whole lot easier to be kind to one another. It would be a lot easier to be gracious to one another if you knew everybody else was going to be like, okay, well, I've received the grace of God in my life, so I'm going to be gracious to you also. That would be really easy, wouldn't it? There's a problem. Is that here in about four hours, we're going to walk out that back door... And we're okay. Maybe maybe sooner than that. You're gonna walk out those doors. You're gonna go home. And some of you, that might be as far as you get before you encounter people who do not think like you do, who do not believe like you do. Others, you're gonna go home, and maybe your family is believers, so it's still relatively easy. But then you're gonna go to work, and your coworkers who aren't believers aren't gonna have that same belief that you do. Or you're going to be going to the gas station and somebody doesn't believe like you do. Or fill in the blank. The truth is that as Christians, we're not just going to go around and we're going to isolate in our own little huddles where we never interact with the world. Right? We, we know that, right? We're going to interact with people who do not believe like we believe. And I promise you that that will happen. Did you know that there are people all around us in our community who do not believe like we believe? And let's just go one step further. Did you know that there are people in our local, state, federal governments who do not believe like we believe? 
Some of you are laughing. Ha! Obvious statement of the day. There are people who do not believe like we believe. So how do we interact with them? Like we know our lives should be different, but specifically with those people who do not believe like we believe, how are we supposed to interact with them? Because it gets harder whenever we start talking about that. It becomes pretty difficult. So what are we supposed to do? Well, like I said, we're not just going to all become monks and move out and live on a hill all by ourselves. That's probably not going to happen. And if I started doing that, you all would say I was a leader of a cult and you're going to be out of here real quick. We're probably not going to do that. And what I don't want to do is set up a, a real strict dichotomy like we're superior to them somehow, even though the truth is we do have something that they don't have, which is a major blessing to us. But I want to be careful not to set up this, this distinction like, okay, you are so much higher than them. I don't want to do that because, and you'll see why here in just a few minutes. Um, but I want to be careful not to do that. But the Bible is clear that Christians are set apart. Christians are different. I mean, uh, it's all over New Testament, Old Testament. Let's just start in Psalm chapter 4, verse 3. It says, Know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. Literally says, set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. It doesn't say it as explicitly, but it still implies it. It says, So then, dear friends, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and of the spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 is a little more obvious. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. There's a distinction. Like a chosen people, chosen out of everyone, we have been made distinctly different. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you know his grace, his kindness, and his mercy, you are set apart. You are. Now, we've been set apart from the world, but that doesn't mean that we're never going to interact with the world. As a matter of fact, we're commanded then to turn around and go back out to the world and bring them the good news that we have. So, of course, we're going to interact with the world. But how do we do that? Well, I believe that's what we find in today's text. Verse 1 of Titus chapter 3 says, Remind them. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. So he starts with this reminder to submit to rulers and authorities. That's not what people want to hear preached right now. I know. I know where I live. I know that I live in rural northwest Missouri where, if we're just being honest, I know this isn't a blanket statement that covers absolutely everybody, but if we're just talking generalities, I know that most people are going to be uh, political conservatives. I know most people are going to, let's just face it, most of you are going to vote Republican just straight down the ballot whenever you go. Okay, I, I know. Not everyone, but I know that that's the case. And whenever we have a Democratic president in the office, you, the last thing you want to hear today is submit to rulers and authorities. I know that. But that's what Paul writes to Titus. That's what he says. And just so you know, it's not like Paul, Paul was under the greatest governing officials. Oh, no, no, no. He was under Roman authority who would have been opposed to what Paul was teaching. Paul knew what it meant to have a rough governing authority. See, the truth is that we live in a broken and a fallen world, but the Bible is clear is that in some way we are still to submit to our earthly authorities. 
And see, I think too many Christians, again, they just want to, all we want to do is we want to trash talk those that we disagree with. We want to slam them and make them seem like they are scum. But is that right? Is that what it means to submit to authorities? I don't, I don't think so. Warren Wearsby actually said this. He said, the believer should not have a bad attitude toward the government and show it by slanderous accusations and pugnacious actions. I just wanted to say pugnacious. Despite the brokenness of the world, we are still commanded by God's word to submit to authorities and rulers. Even when you don't like it. Now, we're told to obey. He says, remind them to submit to rulers and authorities to obey. Again, even broken leaders. Now, is this blind obedience even whenever they tell us to do something that we know we shouldn't, that is morally wrong? Should we follow them then? No, of course not. Of course not. Whenever it comes down to following God or man, we know we follow God's word, first and foremost. First and foremost, we follow his word. And I know that sometimes, given the fact that we live in the United States of America, where each of us has a certain responsibility in ruling the nation, okay, we we have an opportunity to elect representatives who then are supposed to represent us in given offices. I know that we have a responsibility in ruling, okay, so this is where the waters get kind of murky. So I'll admit that this becomes really difficult really quick, but we still need to make sure that we are submitting to authorities and that we are obeying authorities when they don't conflict with God's authority. Okay, so Paul's very clear and he says, be ready for every good work, not just some good works or good works when you want to do them, be ready for every good work. He says, slander no one. In other words, don't be the one who is only slamming those around you. Instead, try to build them up when at all possible. He says to avoid fighting. And by the way, that's something that sometimes we're not great at doing. I mean, especially in our age of digital media, what we want to do is we want to click on Facebook and we want to go in the comments and we want to pick a fight. A real fight. We're those cyber bullies there. We're getting behind the screen and just picking at people. Oh, no, no, no. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to avoid fighting when possible. I know that there's a time when peace is not possible. I know that. That's part of living in a broken world. But when it's up to us, we should avoid fighting. We should avoid it when we can. Christians should naturally be peacemakers not compromising on good, good or not compromising on God's word but making every effort to avoid a fight. And again, be kind. Be kind. That's a simple message but it's really hard to do. Be kind. Showing gentleness to all people. Again, it's easy to be kind to those people we like. I like y'all, so I'm going to have an easier time being kind to you. But there's people I don't like all that much. And sometimes it's hard to be kind. Sometimes it's even harder to be gentle. But God's word demands kindness, and not just to those people we like, but to all people, even people with whom you disagree. But why? Why is it supposed to be that way? Why is it that we behave this way with those who think differently than we do? Why? Why should we interact with the world differently? Well, three reasons today is what I want to show you from Titus 3, 1 through 7. First of all, our interactions with the world should be different because we can empathize because we can empathize. That shouldn't be too hard. Last week, um, our, our text started with a simple four-letter word, but it was really important. If you remember, it was the word for. 
Um, and in the Greek, it's also a four-letter word. It's the word gar. And just like last week, this is an explanatory gar. This is showing us, like, you, you need to submit to rulers and authorities. You need to obey to them for this is true. For this is why you do this. This is explaining why we should behave this way. So he says, verse 3, he says, for we too. Just think about the weight of those three words. For we too. Submit yourselves to rulers and authorities, obey, be ready for every good work, slander no one, avoid fighting, be kind, show gentleness to all people. Why? Because we were them. We were them. You realize that? For we too. The reason we should interact with the world differently, the reason we should express these actions towards the world it's because that was us. You were them. You were a sinner, desperately in need of God's grace. That's who you were. So we can empathize. We were exactly where those people who don't have the love and the, don't know the grace of God in their lives, you were exactly where they are. Exactly where they are. You were infinitely short of God's standard. And see, I think this is something that Paul, Paul clearly understood, very clearly understood. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. Uh, some translations say, of whom I'm the chief, like the chief of sinners. Literally, what he's saying is, I am the worst of the sinners, I am first of sinners. Like, I am the number one sinner. That's what he's saying. And I've claimed this myself sometimes, and I've actually said I think I'm the worst of sinners, and some of y'all have argued with me. I've had this discussion with Alan a couple times. Like, I, I believe that, though. I am the worst of sinners, and I'll, I'll prove it to you. I'll prove it to you. And you are thinking, what is he going to confess today? No, you're not going to get that. Here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to tell you I am the worst of sinners because I know this. My sin before God leaves me infinitely short. You know what's more than infinite? Nothing. I am infinitely short of God's standard. I am the worst of sinners. I am the chief of sinners. I am the number one sinner. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, if we had a bad meter, though, and we went around the room and we filled up everybody's bad meter, do you really think you're the worst? I don't care. Your bad meter is going to make you infinitely short of God's grace. My bad meter is infinitely short of God's grace. Infinite. Can't reach it. It's too much, can't be overcome. The reality is, I know my sin, so I can understand that sinners, that a sinner thinks like a sinner because they haven't come to know the grace of God. They behave like sinners because they haven't come to know the grace of God. Am I worse than anybody else? No, no I'm not, but I'm not better either. I am no better than anybody else out there. The difference between them and me is that the grace of God has covered my sin. That's it. No other distinction to be made. And when we realize that we are sinners who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we can look and we can see the world around us is simply acting out of the infectious disease of which we've been cured. We were just as sick as they are. So why should we interact? Why should we be kind to them? Why should we love them? Because we needed somebody to love us. We needed God's love on us. That's why, for we too, for we too, he says. 
We were those people who were deceived, who were enslaved by various passions and pleasures. We were the ones who were living in malice and envy. We were the ones who were hateful. We were the ones who were detesting others. That was you. And that was me. And we've been forgiven. So we should act like it. Thank God he's come to cure us. He made a way for us to be healed. And now, just like we talked about last week, we need to share that cure with others. And the beauty of that is, I promise it'll work for them. I promise the cure will work for them. It's not like it's got a 50-50 shot. I promise the cure is good enough for them because it was good enough for me. And it was good enough for you. Thanks be to God. Our interactions with the world should be different because we can empathize. Second, our interactions with the world should be different because we're saved. Because we've been forgiven. So they're who you were, but you're not that person anymore. Verse 4 comes on and it says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Think about those three words for just a minute. He saved us. Y'all, that's good news. Like, the best news in the world. Despite the fact that we had no hope, He saved us. In verse 4, we get two more descriptions of Jesus, and these are, these are beautiful also. It says that, first of all, he's the kindness of God. When the kindness of God, our Savior. Jesus is the kindness of God. The greatest picture of kindness ever. And if you remember, um, we talked about God's love for mankind. We talked about how, how the grace of God appeared last week. And again, we see that here. This, uh, the word appeared is our word epiphany. Epiphany, it just shows up, it just happens, like outside of our causing. And it's a, this metaphor for the sunrise in a lot of extra-biblical writings. So we see this epiphany, we see this sunrise, God just showing his light on us, showing his kindness on us. And God's love just shows up. And when he showed up, he saved us. And the text makes it clear that he doesn't save us by works of righteousness that we've done, but because of his great mercy. Charles Spurgeon said it better than I could. He said, being saved by the grace of God alone, we are then out of gratitude to God to abound in everything that is good. Like, you didn't do anything good to start with to earn your salvation, but man, just the fact that you've received the grace of God in your life, you should abound in good works. Like, just think about what you've been given for a minute. And this is the good news. Even though we can't possibly do enough good works or works good enough to be saved, God's love for us just appeared. This epiphany happened, and he willingly gave himself for us. So Paul goes on here, and he says that he does this through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Um, this may be a bit of a tangent, but I'm going to chase it anyway. Um, this this is why, at least in part, why we believe in baptism by immersion here. This is part of why, okay? Um, if you listen to this language, the language here says washing, through the washing of regeneration. And this word washing indicates baptism. It, it means to be washed all over, completely covered. That's this idea of washing. It's not like, well, we're going to clean up, we're going to clean up somebody's face and we're just going to leave the rest of them filthy. No, no, it's all over. It's complete. It's covered. This washing of regeneration. 
Now, I'm not saying that this constitutes a biblical mandate for baptism by immersion, but I do think it best represents what happens at conversion. The Spirit came and completely cleansed, totally cleansed, left no part uncleansed. Okay? So, this regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit allows us to understand the things of God. He comes and He regenerates our mind. He fixes our mind. See, our minds were broken by sin completely broken by sin, and God comes and He regenerates us so that we can understand the things of God. No longer do we have to live in the foolish, disobedient, deceptive, hateful ways that we used to, but because we know the goodness of God, we can display that to the world. Now, this all sounds good, but how does this regeneration and this renewal by the Holy Spirit actually happen? Like, how how do we get that? How does that happen? Verse 6 explains. It says, He poured out His Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. How do you get that regeneration, that renewal? It's through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Anyone who wants this renewal, this newness, this goodness must come through Jesus. There's no other way. Jesus says as much that He is the way, the truth, and the life, right? But through Jesus... Through Jesus, not only do we get a taste of it, he says that it's poured out abundantly. Like not even, not holding back anything, just drenched in the goodness of God. Just covered in it. I know I talk about this often, but that we're not just saved from something, but we're saved to something, right? I think that's important because we know that we've been saved from our own moral depravity, from our own filth, from our own sin. We know that we've been saved from that. But through the grace he gave us, through the washing of the Holy Spirit, through Jesus, we are saved and can be ready for, he says, every good work. We've been saved to good's work. All because he's poured his spirit out on us abundantly. Just soaked us in it. And you never have to wonder, is God's grace really going to be enough? You don't have to wonder. It's abundantly. His spirit is poured out abundantly. You never have to wonder, is there enough to go around? It's not like the cure that we talked about from the movie Balto. It's not like that. It's not like it's going to be outdated or ineffective or there's just not going to be enough. It's not like that. It's always, always, always going to be good enough. And there's always going to be enough to go around. Always. And the truth is, the more we receive that spirit, the more that spirit's going to work through us and, and honestly show every good work. So, our interactions with the world should be different because we can empathize, and second, because we're saved and we've received the Holy Spirit of God who lives and dwells in us. Third, our interactions with the world should be different because we are heirs. Because we are heirs. Um, verse 7, first two words in the Christian standard are so that. And I've told you this several times, and I'm probably going to tell you this again later on, but anytime I see so that in my Bible, I box it in. Um, it, it's kind of a big deal because it shows you that this is happening so that this will be true, or this happened so that that could happen. So we see this causation. That so that is really important because it, it ties the two ideas together. So why, why did he pour out his Holy Spirit? I mean, what, what was the purpose of that? Verse 7 says, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. So now that we've been justified by his grace, we are heirs. But whose heirs do we become? Whose heirs? God's. God's heirs. Okay. This is a crazy concept. Like, if you could, 
If you could say, I am an heir of fill in the blank. Like, I want to be the heir of fill in the blank. Some of y'all are going to name really rich people. I get it. Like, yeah, I don't mind being their heir. Like, I'll take their, their, like, all their money when they go, sure. How much better the God who spoke the universe into existence, who has literally everything at his disposal? You want to be an heir of somebody? Why not pick the king of the universe? Like, it doesn't get much better than that. But that's what happens. The king makes us an heir. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17 says, The Spirit himself testifies, together with our spirit, that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 25, verse 34. He says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The point is that if you have come through Jesus, come to Jesus and receive the Spirit, then you become an heir of God. Y'all, what more could you ask for than that? Like, fill in the blank on anything you could ask for. It's not as good as this. This is better. What more could you possibly want? And it gets, I'm going to make it better. You know what? What more could you want? Well, he goes on. He says, not only do you become an heir, but you get the hope of eternal life. If you could ask for anything, how many of you would say, well, I wish I could never die? You know what people are scared of? Like, a lot of people are scared of death. I get it. That's a crazy thought. That's a scary thought. I'm not knocking anybody for fearing that. How about I tell you, you never have to die. The hope of eternal life. If you remember back to last week, I told you about this word hope. This word, this word hope in, in the Greek last week, I talked about it. And it's this, it's the Greek word elpis um, that we, most of our English translations have translated as hope. But it could also be translated as expectation. It's not a hope. If you remember, just, I know this is a recap, but remember last week I told you this isn't like my hope of winning the lottery, even though I don't play the lottery, right? I can still say I hope I win the lottery. It's like this wish that I know is never really going to happen. Or I could say that I'm going to go home after church today, and I hope that my kids say, Daddy, you sit down, we're going to get you lunch, you put your recliner up, and we'll even fold your laundry for you. Um, That would be like me saying those things. But this is a different hope. This is different. The hope of eternal life isn't like me wishing for something that's never going to happen. This hope is an expectation. So you could say, I expect eternal life. Why? Not because you were good enough. Let me make that clear. Not because you earned it, but because God's grace was poured on you. You have the hope of eternal life. I really wanted to go on and say I was going to put the footrest up and watch the Royals beat the snot out of those dirty, rotten redbirds today. But... um, I should probably move past the baseball analogies. Um, So, that's not what it is. We have the hope, the expectation of eternal life, this future thing that we look forward to. And it's not just an expectation, but it's an expectation that's usually coupled with excitement. I know I say I like to say I'm excited, but I'm excited for the fact I don't have to die. That excites me, y'all. Like, that's good news. That is the good news. And the reason we interact differently with the world is because we have become heirs of God. Like we have the hope of eternal life. And we should behave in such a way that is becoming of an heir. 
like, just think about this. We don't have to operate with the world out of a place of fear. We don't. We talked about that. We don't have to live in a place of fear. Why? Because we have the love of God in Jesus that casts out fear. We don't have to be fearful anymore. Why? Because our dad will kick their dad's butt. We don't come from a place of uncertainty anymore. We don't have to just be like, oh, I'm not real sure if this is okay, if I'm going to be all right. No, we can come from a place of calm assurance, knowing that our God is as certain as it comes, that he never fails, and that he gives himself abundantly. We can be heirs of the king, the ultimate king. In other words, our interactions should be a reflection of our status before God. They should. The way that we interact should be a reflection of our status before God as heirs of the king. So our interactions with the world should be different because we can empathize because we're saved and because ultimately we are heirs of the king. So what? Well, first of all, we should be displaying God's love to those around us, shouldn't we? I mean, really, we should. For a lot of reasons. First, because we were them. You were them. Does that make sense to you all? Like, do you get that? I I hope that that makes sense. Like, you were them. You were exactly where they are, hopeless and scared. You're not anymore. Not because of what you've done, but because of what a God did for you. Because of what he did for you. So we need to love people because we were them. We were in the same position in the grace of God. Shown on us. Further, we should love them because God loves them. We should care for them because he wants them. He loves them. So of course we should, we should be that way. And he's our father. You know, I don't know how many times I pick up the phone whenever I was a kid, right? Back whenever we still had landlines. And I don't know how many times, especially whenever I became a teenager, whenever I was a kid, it was a little more obvious, but I I grew up a little bit. And I'd answer that landline. I'd pick it up and I'd say, hello. And somebody would say, Ron, no, this is not Ron. This is Jared. Ron would be my dad. Why do I sound like him? Well, because I reflect in a lot of ways. I resemble my father. I resemble my father. Now, some of you know my dad. and You're like, Jared, you don't look anything like your dad. Well, you know, sorry, I'm just better looking than he is. Um, But... The truth is that we should reflect our Father. We should reflect our Father. So we should love what He loves. We should desire what He desires. So I guess what I want to urge you today as we think about how we interact with the world, I want to remember who I want you I want to urge you. Just remember who you are and who you were. Remember who you are and who you were, because this will necessarily change the way that you interact with those around you. This will change everything. The way that you love people, the way you care for people. Because when we see that we were truly the chief of sinners, whenever we could say, I I am the number one sinner, whenever we see that we can say that, we can then love people where they are and tell them that they can be forgiven too. And we can tell them how that they can become heirs of the king right alongside us. That's why we should interact differently with the world. Let me pray for you all. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this word. I thank you for this letter from Paul that you preserved so that we could sit here a couple thousand years later and look at this and study this and just know that you've made us different. Um, Lord, I pray that you would allow this to take root, that we might really just abound in every good work. 
that we would be wise in how we submit to authorities and how we obey authorities, Lord, and how we show kindness to those around us. Father, I pray that you would teach us how to do that, how to reflect you to this world. Um, Lord, I, I thank you that we're not who we were. Um, Lord, I know who I was, um, and it wasn't good. So I just thank you for loving me and for saving me and continuing to change me. Lord, and I know that I'm not the only one in this room who feels that way, so I just thank you today. On behalf of all those people who have been forgiven of their sin, Lord, I thank you for making a way and for giving us your spirit so that we might know what it means to follow you. Um, Father, I pray that you would continue that good work that you'd started. Um, Let us follow you and be faithful to you. God, I pray that you would encourage, that you would just urge us to faith and good works. Um, Lord, I'm so thankful, so thankful for Jesus and the price that he paid. Lord, let it affect every part of our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.